Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alva. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the Conservative Party conference and Boris Johnson's speech. And then our special correspondent, Sophie McBain, joins us to speak about her expose of rape culture in British schools. So Stephen and Alva are back from Manchester, looking a little haggard, if you don't mind me saying (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we have seen some stuff okay like i mean you didn't have a hotel room when you arrived as i heard i'm actually so gutted about this because people have been coming up to me during conference and saying you look surprisingly perky considering you know the few days that you've had and i say oh it's my industrial strength concealer but clearly it's failed to work today <laughs> sorry i'm actually being misleading to our listeners you both look beautiful beautiful glowing you're lighting up the studio um <laughs> no i think fair enough definitely haggard on the inside <laughs> so as as listeners will know we were very surprised at the quality of our hotel in brighton it was a very nice hotel of course inevitably the universe had to rebalance itself because you know what's the opposite of a really good hotel not you might think a bad hotel it's actually no hotel <laughs> um, so after several four hours of Trying to find a hotel, yeah, I was sending a lot of emails, me spending a lot of time on, on hold to uh, the emergency travel uh, people. Uh, a terrifying five minutes when they tried to charge the cost of these emergency hotels to my own card, where it was a bit like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, <laughs> we ended up, and this also was particularly painful because long-term podcast listeners will appreciate this, in a Novotel. Oh, that's not bad. Oh. Yeah, see, see, no. even Anush doesn't get it. Your two podcast co-hosts don't even get this podcast reference. Okay, so way back in the dawn of time when we first had adverts, we had adverts for Novotel. This was before before my time, before I think. You, yeah, and uh, so this thing, in addition to feeling tired and old because I'd spent <laughs> ages, like when I was like, and it's a Novotel, and Alva was just like, mm. and what? It's like, oh God, <laughs> I've I've lived too long. But long-term listeners will remember that we had adverts for Novotel. And obviously every every product we advertise we feel enthusiastic and full of full of support for. But I actually do really like Novotel. So it was, you know, it was I like that kind of the fact that you have this feeling you really could be anywhere in them. They have that kind of magical hotel quality thing going on. They're the safe option. They're the McDonald's of the hotel world. Well as someone who wasn't allowed McDonald's as a as a child, um, I do every conference end up going to them in this kind of sort of like no one can stop me. 
<laughs> I'm an adult now. I'm an adult, yeah. No consequences. Who cares about the rainforest, Mom? Who cares? I'm going to have a McNugget. Um, All right, well, tell me a bit about the mood of the conference before we talk about Boris Johnson's speech. Alva? You know, I had a brilliant time. It was just so interesting. It actually, even though it was tiring and we spent day one trying to secure a hotel, um, it actually was just a reminder of, of why we do this job because it is just the best way of getting an insight into the mood and the thinking within the governing party. And, and there's really nothing like it, even when you're sitting in Westminster, just the number of conservatives that you can speak to back to back. Um, you, you can kind of take the temperature in a completely different way. Mm. So I think that the, the main thing that struck me is something that we have been saying on the podcast before, but it just sort of overwhelmed me at this conference, which is just the, the sheer pragmatism of conservatives. I think... Um, it, I had so many interesting conversations with very thoughtful Tories, lots of whom listened to this podcast, including one who let me into a party I wasn't invited to because he was on the door. And he, <laughs> <laughs> he said, oh, Alvaro, I know you from the podcast, so thank you to you. I told you you'd get a shout out and here it is. <laughs> but I had so many interesting conversations with very thoughtful conservatives who have various concerns about the direction of the party under Boris Johnson, lots of people who don't really like him, um, who feel like they are kind of straying from their ideological values uh, under him, um, but kind of feel like they need to stick with him because he's popular. But, you know, like concerns in every direction and very well thought through. Also, all the pro-Europeans who are still in the party, still feeling alienated, but still there. It was really interesting, I think, as a demonstration of the, the thoughtfulness and all the thinking going on behind the scenes, especially the concerns over the national insurance rise, this bigger trend of, of you know, the Conservatives becoming the party of tax and spend, as a lot of them see it. But then this sense that still they want to stick with Boris Johnson and then that speech, which I know we'll come on to, just this huge reinforcement of this idea that Boris Johnson is absolutely king, you know, for all that you can tap into the you know the whispers around who might succeed him and the different people kind of trying to bolster support for themselves people like Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss who are quite popular it's still very much his party and um, he has this enormous grip on it this probably wasn't so obvious to people watching from home but all the cabinet ministers had to deliver their speeches within the conference center so there was a sort of corner of the conference center you know where, where they have all the stalls for the different charities and businesses and so on a corner with a podium set up and and sort of seats set out for the cabinet ministers to deliver their speeches and it was quite small and they were competing with the noise of the conference center and then Boris Johnson had a, his own huge purpose-built auditorium sort of Trump style and also cabinet ministers were quite limited in how long they could speak for limited in, in terms of the policy announcements that they could make. One MP was saying, you know, how striking it is that all the cabinet ministers refer to him as the boss. Mm -hmm. And this real sense that everyone is rowing in behind Boris Johnson despite all of these concerns. I was just... I mean, you wrote, Stephen, that this could be the high watermark of Johnsonism. I think we probably will look back on this conference, the first one that they've had since they won in 2019 with that huge majority. I think we'll look back on this as the sort of the high point of Boris Johnson's tenure, of this quite remarkable moment where there are so many concerns about where the country is at the moment and also how he differs with his party. And yet everyone was just so completely behind him and the mood was still quite 
buoyant. It was just, it was just fascinating. Yeah, Stephen, tell us a bit about that because you, you concluded that the party was sort of on board with Boris Johnson, but not necessarily Johnsonism. They are just genuinely the most interesting of the um, the four major parties in Great Britain. Yeah, internally, I mean, right? They just have a lot more going on from a sort of, um, yeah, like they can't be very neatly split into easily defined tribes. There's, a, a, yeah, a lot going on underneath the first surface. But one of the interesting things is you have loads of MPs who have personal doubts about him, but they have an awful lot of certainty about why their majority is the size it is. And then you have loads of activists who have loads and loads of doubt about the policy program that they are committed to, but they love him. And it was this thing where he started his conference speech with a comment about, you know, the the corduroy communist cos- cosmonaut, yeah, Corbyn, uh, who he didn't name. And you could feel everyone who's had to cover a Boris Johnson speech. I say this despite the fact I did, as I always do, not watching the conference hall. Which, you know, but you could you could feel this shudder from every journalist to like, oh, oh this shtick really still. And... Several Conservative MPs who remain nomads to just like, this is a bit play the hits, isn't it? But they loved it, right? The audience loved it. They loved his jokes. They, But the interesting thing is every time he did one of his like, of course we have to raise taxes to deal with this public funding thing, of course we had to do this stuff on the NHS, they did this much more kind of, we understand that we have to clap because it's our party and we're on TV. And the interesting thing is the most genuine applause line was the one which... Clearly, Boris himself didn't see coming and the speechwriter didn't see coming because he stepped on the applause line, which is he went, yeah, the vaccine's because of capitalism. They loved that. It was capitalism that ensured we had a vaccine in less than, than a year. And the answer, therefore, is not to attack the wealth creators, it's to encourage them because they are responsible for the aggregate increase in the country's wealth that enables us to make those Pareto improvements and to level up everywhere. And to rub home my point, to rub home my point. That was the most sort of spontaneous um, bit. Now, of course, parties do move towards their leader over time because people people who don't like the direction leave and people who like it join. So it may be in 10 years' time the party grassroots likes this stuff as opposed to just liking the leader. But it is interesting how you basically have this instrumental relationship with the parliamentary party where loads of them are like, mm, not sure about him, but it works electorally. And a large chunk of the grassroots are like, mm, not sure about this programme, but I like him. I find it hard to see how this, well, we won't look at this as the high watermark for him personally, regardless, right? Because obviously what he hopes is he's got his, his loyal people in big posts now. They will deliver for him. But of course, if they do deliver, they will become more powerful, right? Why is Liz Truss currently in the box seat for the Conservative leadership? Because she's been a successful trade minister. Why is Rishi the second favourite? Because he's had a successful pandemic. And obviously we're... We don't need to get into the various debates about that on this one. That's an issue for another time. If the delivery ministers fail, then the government will be in trouble. But if the delivery ministers succeed, then, of course, they will be forces in their own right. Whereas at the moment, they are all in different ways wholly owned um, subsidiaries of the boss. Of course, if it doesn't work, then it's the high watermark for other reasons. But it, it, it was a very interesting conference. Huge levels of, of joy at the, the win, but... Yeah, definitely, yeah, anxiety over net zero where the socially acceptable way for people to say that they basically don't believe in it is to go, what about the cost? Mm. And then people with real concerns about the level of the tax burden. 
Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to bore listeners with my reflections on it because I wasn't there. But what trickled out to me was slightly jarring sort of triumphalist tone from the conference with what's actually happening in real life in terms of inflation. And this is the first month that energy bills have gone up reflecting the, the price of gas and the UC cut, which came in on the day of Boris Johnson's speech. So I wondered whether or not it felt like a parallel universe at all or whether that stuff was an underlying anxiety. There was fringe after fringe about, for example, those anxieties around tax and spend. There was a very interesting fringe event with um, organised by the Taxpayers Alliance um, where they had a very thoughtful conversation about the need for some tax increases, but also their concerns and and, about how ultimately they want to recommit to a small state. And at the end of the R the person I was with and I turned to each other and said, you know, there, there was no mention of the cost of living crisis, fuel prices. And when you're talking about fiscal policy and about the economy, it was, and that happened at every event. I think there was only one passing reference to the current issues in Boris Johnson's own speech. I think he said that there could be some difficulties or a phrase like that. Um, but that was really all that he touched on. So I felt like Boris Johnson's speech made more sense in the context of the conference than in the wider world. I got home and my flatmate was saying that she didn't really get it because, you know, she's very worried about fuel prices and so on. It made sense in the internal context because I think that party really wanted a victory rally for 2019. And if if they were going to have a moment to celebrate this leader who's incredibly popular with a caveat that, you know, we could go into later. (laughs) He's relatively popular, but not incredibly popular, I suppose. But if they wanted to have a moment to celebrate him and that victory, then this was the time to do it. But it is a huge gamble, which again is just fascinating because this framing of labour shortages as sort of all part of the grand plan, this transition to a high wage, high productivity economy driven by labour shortages and rising costs is, I think, not just an area of concern for the Labour Party and, you know, people in business and and external critics, but a lot of internal critics. I think that's what's really fascinating, that Boris Johnson has really leaned into this line and made it a big part of his speech. But there are big concerns over it. I mean, it was described by the Adam Smith Institute today as economically illiterate. And you just sort of wonder whether that will work for him. Mm, it's sort of his comfort zone, isn't it? Taking pot shots at, at businesses or at least representatives of, of British business from the uh, Brexit campaign. And you did have a lot of voices after his speech coming out from the business world um, criticising it. But really, you know, if he's in his comfort zone doing this, does it eventually collide with the reality that actually businesses don't have what they need in order to recruit people on higher wages to the extent that they need to sort of get us through winter? This is the thing I found very interesting about it, because occasionally at dinners with ministers or MPs or SPADs, the sort of subject of the stuff that was going outside would, you know, intrude. And people go like, oh, and the polls aren't moving. So, you know. Mm. And then, you know, the conversation would therefore kind of turn to, you know, the problems of the Labour Party and why people thought that was. Now, maybe they're right. And the, the reason why the polls haven't moved is to do with, you know, a variety of problems with the Labour Party. And then these things won't change overnight. But I do think then there's kind of weird dissonance yeah there are some conservative mps who will will kind of quietly drop their voices and go i just feel like things are about to get quite bad for us um because yeah people keep saying oh why isn't the fuel crisis affecting the government well it's like actually 
in real terms, right, the, the fuel crisis, the way it manifests itself is you have to queue for ages to get petrol, but in the end, you do still have petrol. Ditto, like, the, the kind of weird, what I think of as, like, the sort of small Brexitings that keep happening in various supermarkets or at Greg's or whatever, where there's like, yeah, sorry, we don't have any of that in. You do still, in the end, leave Greg's with something. When they keep going, oh, well, when people pay more for HGV drivers, it's just like, yes, and at that point, you will leave the supermarket with less, either less money in your pocket or less in your shopping basket because you literally can't afford it. I got back because, you know, my, my partner does all of the, like, finance stuff because, you know, she's, like, basically from Tory Britain, so she has all that money-saving expert Martin Lewis stuff. And at the start of the crisis, I was like, who are we with? You know, what the joint account? And she's like, don't worry, your pretty little head about it. But, she came, um, but Martin Lewis has emailed all of, you know, his followers. And as you know, having interviewed him, Anoush, the man has a lot of devoted followers going, yeah, we can't provide you this energy bill saving thing because we think these companies are going to collapse. And basically, everyone on that email is either, you know, someone from like those swing seats in the in the West Midlands who ultimately decide the government, or they're people who really desperately need to save money, who again, will d decide the next government. And I think that there's this real kind of failure, you know, not just among MPs, but among a lot of journalists as well, to reckon with the fact that what we're seeing at the moment is the inconvenience bit of the shortage. Uh, but actually, it being resolved, resolves itself in a way which will be really difficult for people on lower and middle incomes, and therefore one would anticipate probably quite difficult for the government. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So we're now joined by our special correspondent, Sophie McBain, who's written the cover story of The New Statesman this week. The headline is The Reckoning, and it's about rape culture and the crisis of misogyny in British schools. Um, and she's joined us to discuss what she's discovered. Sophie, how did you come across this story and why did you think that it was worth exposing? Well, over the spring and summer, a social media campaign called Everyone's Invited had started gathering testimonies, ultimately from tens of thousands of students, attesting to rape culture in British schools. And then I noticed that Colchester Royal Grammar School, which is one of the highest achieving state schools in the country academically, had been downgraded over its safeguarding failures. And that happened after a student called Scarlett Mansfield, a former student at the school, had spoken out about the abuse she experienced and collected over 200 testimonies from other students. And so I really wanted to look at what was happening at this particular school to try to understand what the impact is, what happens when young people speak out about what happened to them at school. And I think the thing I found is that the situation is more urgent and more desperate than I had even realised and also more complicated. Okay, and so what was Scarlett and her peers' experience of misogyny at that school? 
So Scarlett had kept a diary of her time at school and in this diary, which she showed to me, she described lots of cases of harassment and bullying by other students, but also that one of her friends locked her in a car and forced her to give him oral sex and another friend raped her. And lots of these other testimonies, there were hundreds of stories of sexist jokes going unaddressed, racist jokes going unchallenged, but also these dozens of first-person accounts of sexual assault or rape by fellow pupils. And there's a horrible story, isn't there, where she hadn't actually realised what had happened to her in her assault. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, and this is actually a pattern that seems to happen a lot, that um, it's really hard for any victim of sexual assault, but especially when it's young people, to um, necessarily be able to recognise that what happened to them was wrong. And so for Scarlett, she has a line in her diary where she says, oh, it's really funny, I keep on crying uh, during sex and I don't understand why. And then she said to me, you know, it was actually because I was raped and I, I didn't even realise that it happened. And another woman I spoke to who was raped by several pupils at a party when she was unconscious. She said it took her years to be able to understand that what had happened to her wasn't her fault and actually something about the large number of of young people who spoke out during Everyone's Invited. It was only then that she understood that it wasn't that she was this exceptionally bad person and that's why this had happened to her. It was like there's this really huge systemic problem and she was a victim of that. And you actually speak to someone who is still a pupil at that school, don't you? And you hear about his own horrific experience and just the idea of him continuing to go to school in that environment is one probably of the most shocking parts of this piece. Can you tell us a bit about him? Yeah, so he um, is a sixth former at the school and he said when he was in year 10, he was raped and threatened with a knife by an older boy. Well, he wanted to speak to me for several reasons. And one is to try to change the culture. Two is he wanted people to understand that not all of the victims are young girls, that there's also a culture of homophobia and, and boys are also victims of sexual assault and sometimes it's even harder for them to speak out. Um, he said that when it happened to him, he first, he didn't know what he should do, but he also felt he couldn't tell a teacher because he said there's a snitches get stitches culture and he thought that the support would be behind the perpetrator and not behind him if he did speak out. And how did the school respond when you put these allegations to them? They said that they have been working very hard to create a supportive culture, one that promotes equality and respect. They said they couldn't comment on specific allegations. And they also have, in light of the Ofsted downgrade, um, and there's been a threat to pull funding to that school, they have implemented a large number of reforms to try to address the problem. And I think one thing that is really important to emphasise is that this isn't a problem at one school. It's, it really is nationwide. Yeah, tell me a bit about that, because we want to get away from this idea that it's just one bad apple, one bad school. How widespread is it and how is that manifesting itself? So the 
Everyone's Invited campaign in June submitted a list of schools that had been named by young people because of cases of sexual harassment, sexual abuse and sexism. And they ultimately named 3,000 schools, so around one in 10 schools in the country. And then Ofsted, in response to Everyone's Invited, commissioned a review of sexual abuse in schools, which actually just confirmed what the government has known for years that sexual harassment is rife and it's accepted as a part of daily life in British schools and that British students still feel that they're not being taught how to recognise if a relationship's abusive, they're not being taught about consent. Right, okay, and so have they changed their standards now and how is that working? So one of the things that's happened is that this September compulsory relationships and sex education has been rolled out through all schools. Um, That was something that was recommended in a government report in 2016 and the implementation has been delayed for a year because of COVID. But the problem that lots of experts identified is that teachers have been saying they don't feel comfortable teaching this material, they want face-to-face training in it, and that hasn't happened. The Department for Education had estimated that it would cost between 18 million and around 59 million to roll out this new curriculum, and it told me it had spent 4 million. Right. Wow. Okay. So that's a big gap. Yeah, huge shortfall. Which is worrying for the children who are involved in this kind of culture. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also not just about sex and relationships education. There are all kinds of other things that would be really helpful, like having school counsellors in every school, like having the whole school body trained on issues like equality and sexual consent so that teachers know how to intervene in what are really emotionally fraught and complicated situations. It's really hard for teachers to be able to distinguish between all the different shades of grey that separate a misunderstanding from a criminal act. And I think one thing that young people understand very in intuitively and very intimately and that experts know is that if you fail to address a really problematic culture if you fail to address sexism and homophobia in the classroom that's what creates the conditions for these really traumatizing and horrific acts of violence Mm, yeah and a more open culture with more support for pupils in this kind of issue would probably avoid the flip side of the problem which is perhaps schools getting police involved too quickly for these kind of matters um, and that can have an impact on boys. You speak to a lawyer who says that they wouldn't want to be a boy in in school right now because of that kind of knee-jerk response the other way. Yeah, because what all experts are emphasising is they don't think a punitive response is helpful. They think that the focus should really be on victim support and on being able to identify and respond in a really sensitive and constructive way to unhealthy peer dynamics, unhealthy sexual behaviour in young people. So as you say, this fear about what kind of atmosphere we're creating for young boys is very much related to the fact that the government is not giving sufficient funding and making sufficient resources available to schools. Because also, if a young boy is exhibiting problematic behavior that can be a sign that something's not right at home that they're themselves the victims which is another reason that you do want teachers to be really responsive to be picking up on this kind of thing and to be responding appropriately 
And of course, this means yet more pressure on teachers um, who have already been under incredible strain during the pandemic and with many other services being underfunded, sort of picking up the slack for social services and other, you know, pupil referral services, for example. I mean, how can they expect to deal with this issue as well? Yeah, absolutely. As as so much of your reporting has shown, just how much strain teachers are under. And so it does come down to a funding problem. And and ultimately, what lots of experts said was they really object to the fact that what's happened at the moment is we've developed a bit of a name and blame response. So Ofsted has said, in response to everything that's happened, schools should assume that they have a problem and they should be responding appropriately. And if they're not, then they're going to be downgraded as inadequate, which can have all kinds of really really terrible consequences. But the problem is that it's just not enough to be saying schools are rubbish, teachers are rubbish, without giving them the resources they need to fix the problem. Okay. Well, thank you so much for exposing this story, Sophie. Um, and I hope that we'll be reading more about it and how hopefully the situation improves in the months and years to come. I really hope so, because I think that the positive from this is that I think a school can be a real driver for social change, that if we can address this problem, we might be able to really fix some very deep-seated cultural problems that we have throughout society. Thanks so much for having me on, Anish. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shakelian, and my colleagues Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. We're produced by May Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review.